I became obsessed in my childhood trying to figure out the meaning of people's names. It was very difficult back then before the Google machine was invented. And I am applying this childhood obsession to those in the band today, although they do not know that and probably just shut the door. And part of our production team as well. Ladies first, I will begin with Sarah Ann. Sarah. Sarah's name in Arabic means joy or delightful. From the ancient Hebrew, one of the oldest names ever recorded, Sarah literally means princess. Maybe she is living up to her name. In the back of the room, Bobby, a derivative of Robert. It is German. It means shining glory. Bobby is putting our eyes out, even as we speak. Garrett, an actual English name. It means spear. Garrett, sir, you are a weapon of war. Timothy, as in Timothy R. Riles. Another name taken from the scriptures. It's of Greek origin, the name of the Apostle Paul's most trusted associate. It means honoring God or to be honored by God. Tim doesn't feel that way after a week of battling a hurricane, but his name remains the same. Ricky, a second Germanic title, more of a name, more than just a name. It is derived from Richard, but Ricky wanted me to tell y'all that his birth name is in fact Ricky. That's on his birth certificate. Ricky means leader. And it was Ricky's decision that the band wear white today and I wear black, so he is living up to his name. All right, all right. Ricky is in charge. Ronnie. Typically, this is short for Ronald, but I have to go with my man, Ricky. My legal name is, in fact, Ronnie, because I have a twin sister named Connie. And if I was Ronald, she would have to be Conald. And I've told her that my whole life, and she hates it, so maybe she'll see this later. Ronald is actually transliterated from an ancient Viking name, Ragnavald, the wise ruler. And I'm going to let that one pass on by. But of our merry band, I have saved Nick Turner for last, Nicholas. It is Greek, Nike, and that name has an incredible story attached to it. A man named Philippides was what we might call a courier today, a herald who would deliver messages. And he was present at a great battle in 490 B.C. where the Persians had invaded Greece, and the site was called Marathon. And after a horrific and bloody battle, the Greeks prevailed and defeated the Persian assault, and immediately Philippides took off running to Athens to deliver this good news. It was roughly 26 miles from Marathon to Athens, are you following? And he covered that ground at such an excruciating pace that when he ran through the city gates, he had one word on his lips. He repeated it three times, Nike, 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 victory, 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 and he dropped dead of his exhaustion. Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight heard that story almost 60 years ago and put their own spin on it, not Nike, but Nike, and a worldwide icon was born. Nick, if you're listening back there, your name is not a tennis shoe. It is a declaration of victory, and may you live up to your name. Question, what is in a name? For most of us, only the whimsical desire of our parents who named us. Maybe it is tradition we are named after a parent or a grandparent, or some dear friend. Maybe our name was picked from one of those old baby name books. Did anybody ever have one of those? Did you have a baby name book? 
Maybe we were named after an author. I have a cousin named after a baseball player. Many people named after Bible figures. But in our time and place, we aren't necessarily defined by our names. We might bring honor or shame to the family name. We might embarrass our name. We may not live up to our name, so to, st- so to speak, but a name is just a name. It's a handle. It's a designation, but it hasn't always been so. In ancient cultures and societies with different values than ours, a person's name was everything. It told you not what they were called. It told you where they came from and who they were. This is particularly true in the ancient Hebrew culture. I'll give you a few examples this morning. The second human that we have recorded as being born was a man named Abel. And his name literally means to take breath. It was a novel thing. Abraham. It means father of many. And all three monoistic faiths call Abraham father. Isaac. It means laughter. Because when his postmenopausal mother heard that she was going to give birth, she laughed. And the name stuck with Isaac. Israel, he who wrestles with God. Because that is exactly what Jacob, whose name would be transformed to Israel, did. Moses brought from the waters. Because that is where Pharaoh's daughter found him. Jesus, a Greek translation of Joshua, God is my salvation. And then go back to the story that we have been in for several weeks now. In this series about Joseph and his brothers. A few weeks ago I shared how his family was one of the more dysfunctional families you will find anywhere. Their story reads like a polygamous wagon train gone wrong in the sands of pre-Civil War Utah. One husband, one father, four wives, two of the wives are sisters, and twelve screwball sons. And the mothers begin naming their sons based on the trying circumstances in which they were living at the time. Leah, who Jacob did not love, but he married her anyway because he got caught in a bad deal. Go back and listen to that one. She gives birth to a, to a boy and she names him Reuben. The name literally means misery. How would you like to take that one on the first day of school to kindergarten? What's your name, Misery? She had another son, Simeon. It means unloved. Because the Lord knows that I am not loved by my husband. Levi, at last my husband will become attached to me. On and on these names go. Each woman having a son, giving him a name that defines him because of the circumstances of his birth. And then you get to Joseph, the favored son, the firstborn of Rachel, And he gets a different kind of name, Joseph. God has given. God has increased. God has added. Which is a pretty good name when your brothers are named Misery and Unloved. But it's not Joseph's name that is the most pressing in the text today. It is the name of his two sons born to him while he was in Egypt. Chapter after chapter, the writer of Genesis has built Joseph's story to this moment. We have read about his favored status at home, the betrayal of his brothers, his selling into slavery, the false charges of sexual assault that get him put in prison, his years of wasting away behind bars, his dreams and ability to interpret dreams, 
And now this, with just a few strokes of the pen, the writer summarizes the radical transition that Joseph has experienced. Joseph becomes the second in command in all of Egypt, answering only to Pharaoh. And he devises a master plan that will save the nation from famine. He moves into a palace. He finds love. He gets married. And he has these two children. And their names are remarkable. Keeping with the tradition of his own people. People that now he has not seen in over 20 years. He names these sons based on his circumstances. The firstborn, he names Manasseh. The second is called Ephraim. First things first, Manasseh. The word literally means to forget. And Joseph adds, God has made me forget all my troubles and the family of my father. Manasseh seems to close the book on Joseph's past. His worst troubles are now behind him. And of course, this doesn't mean his memory banks have been miraculously erased. How I wish that was possible. But the memories and these past injuries have begun to lose their sting. And those red and blue streaked wounds are no longer there. They've turned into scars. They'll always be there. But he's not wounded any longer by it. He is healing. And then that second son, Ephraim, it literally means prosperity. God has made me fruitful in this land of suffering. If Manasseh closes one chapter on Joseph's life, then Ephraim, the second born, opens a new one. The land of unjust suffering was now for Joseph an oasis in that desert into which he had been sold. And so these two boys are like hinges on Joseph's life, swinging him from what he once had, where he once was, to what he is now and where his life is now going. What's in a name? Well, for Joseph, his entire life up to this point is in the name of these children. They are a testimony to his resiliency, God-given it must have been, that kept him hoping, kept him moving, kept him dreaming, and kept him alive. Resiliency, in a word, is the stuff that separates those who ultimately come out on the other side from those who surrender to some sort of victimhood. It is the right stuff. It is the enduring stuff. It is the stuff of which Joseph was made. And every time he called one of his boys by name, he was reminding himself of the gracious resiliency that had sustained him throughout his life. Scores of studies have been conducted in recent years on resiliency, looking at the survival skills of prisoners of war, Victims of prolonged sexual abuse, other trauma survivors. This year, 2020, will be studied for generations to come, I think. On how some have coped and adapted to this new world and some simply have not been able to do so. Resiliency is really still a sort of mystery. It is this ability to bounce back in the face of difficulty. It is a spirit, and I, I sound sort of like a Pentecostal when I say that, but it's true. It's, it's a spirit within a person that they are able to bend and not to break when they are put under extreme pressure. My favorite Ernest Hemingway quote, The world breaks everyone, but afterwards some are strong. 
at the broken places. That's resiliency. It's grit. It's stamina. It's this inner strength. It's a quiet kind of defiance. And that is what Joseph had. Joseph was a survivor. And it's not that he didn't feel the heat. Certainly he did. It's not that he didn't hurt. Certainly he did. You know he had to grow downhearted. He had to get depressed. There had to be times when he thought, this is it. I can't go on. I'm donezo. I learned that word from Braden, who's here today. Donezo. It's my 2020 favorite word. I am so donezo. But somehow, the sun would come up in the morning, and he would too. And he pressed on. One halting step at a time, even when those steps weren't taking him anywhere. He did not allow the very real impossibility of his life to define him or his future. He just kept going. He kept moving. He, he stayed at it. He just kept grinding. Blessed are those who muddle through, for they shall see the future. That's not one of Jesus' beatitudes, but it's one of mine. Blessed are those who muddle through. You just got to keep moving. And as you do, sometimes the past can fall away and the future can unfold. How did the Apostle Paul say it in the New Testament? He said, I haven't arrived. I haven't got life figured out. But this one thing I do, one thing, I press on. Forgetting the past, I press on To take hold of the prize that God through Christ Jesus will grant to me. So if you're breathing today, even behind those masks. And you're here in this room or you're listening to this later on audio or watching this video later. If you're still breathing, you still have a chance. And you can't quit. You haven't got to the end yet. And I know that we are measuring, I don't know about you, but we're measuring COVID months as if they are dog years. Except maybe even longer. Have you noticed that? It's only only been six months since we were here. It seems like four or five years ago. It's not finished. And you might have to adjust your path. You might have to adjust your expectations. You might have to readjust and recalibrate your trajectory. But press on. So I ask again, what is in a name? Sometimes everything is in a name. Manasseh, I will forget this past. Ephraim, I am moving on to whatever lies out ahead in the future. My friend Ezra Anin has been a longtime guide in Israel. Here he is. I think that's on Garrett's trip to Israel a few years ago. He's one of the more remarkable men that I've ever met, and I could talk for the next two hours about him and his life. And I don't know with COVID travel restrictions in the Middle East if, honestly, if I will ever get to see him again. Still, his contribution to my life has been measureless, as it has to many people, some in this room. And not the least of these contributions is a story about his own mother-in-law that I first heard Back in 2016, Safta, as the family called her, the Hebrew word for grandmother, was the only one of her entire family to survive World War II and the Holocaust, where six million Jews were exterminated 
by the Nazis. She was a little girl in Poland, a little Jewish girl in Poland, teenager, adolescent, when the war broke out. The Germans invaded Pola, and Safta's own Safta, her grandmother, hid her for as long as she could. But when the Nazi intentions became very clear, Safta's Safta handed her only living grandchild over (laughs) to a convent, to a group of nuns, and begged them to protect her. They smuggled her out of Poland and into Russia, where she was taken under the care of a Russian Orthodox order. But then the Germans invaded Russia. From Russia, she was smuggled into Iran, believe it or not, a path that many Holocaust survivors took to escape Europe. From Iran, she was smuggled to India. And there in India, a woman whose name is now lost to history named Henrietta Saul found her. Safta had a name, Nadia. It means hope. Nadia made friends with another little Jewish girl. Henrietta Saul found passage on a British destroyer leaving Bombay for Israel. She found the money for Nadia to get on that boat and get safe, finally, after four years of running. And Nadia refused to get on the boat without her friend. She said, I've lost everything and I've lost everyone in my family. I cannot lose her. And Henrietta Saul somehow, way, got a two-for-one deal. Got both those girls on that destroyer. In four years of running, she docked and made her way to Jerusalem. In a few years, she would marry. She would have a family. She herself would have the daughter that Ezra Anin would marry. Have grandchildren. And when Nadia was near the end of her life, almost on her deathbed, her Grandson, Ezra's son, Moshe, who died in 2000 in a terrorist attack in the West Bank. Not much older than when she was when she first began to escape the Nazis. Came to her bedside one day and he, she, and he said, Safta, tell me what happened. Because all these years she had never told her story, not even to her family. And she again refused. And Ezra has a way of convincing people. And Ezra came to her bedside and said, how dare you? Your grandson, your family is gathered at your bedside. And if you perish without this story being told, your story will perish. Your grandchildren deserve to know what it took to survive. And for hours, she sat up on the side of her bed and told the story I've just told to you in five minutes. Nadia, hope, (laughs) what's in a name? 99.9% chance out of 100 that you will never face what Joseph or Nadia faced. But we keep telling their stories. Not simply to make them heroes, because that would be enough. But we keep telling their stories... To keep us on the path. We tell their stories. And we say their names. 
so that we might find the resiliency we need ourselves in this world in which we now live. What's in a name? Sometimes everything is in a name if that name gives you what you need to survive.